Hi, good afternoon. This is Greg Lois and it is January 28th. Today we're going to be talking about Medicare secondary payer issues in New Jersey lump sum section 20 settlements. This is 100% live. We have a great listening audience today. Please feel free to ask me your questions. I can see them pop up on my screen as we go and I'm very happy to answer questions today at the end. Uh, Section 20s are basically the reason uh, we wake up in the morning in the New Jersey workers' comp practice. And one of the complicating factors and one of the reasons we sometimes don't want to do a Section 20 is Medicare secondary, secondary payer issues. And for those reasons, today we are concentrating on this. Uh, please feel free to ask us questions really about any topic. Uh, but uh, if you have questions about Section 20s or uh, secondary payer cases, uh, bring them. I'd be very excited to answer your questions today. All right, let's talk just briefly about some new stuff. And when we get to the Medicare secondary payer aspect of this presentation, I'll get there. Uh, the new stuff in Jersey and, and really nationwide is now we have Medicare cards. Okay, so Social Security has now, as of October 2018, completed their mail out of cards across the country. So now Medicare beneficiaries have a unified card. It doesn't have their Social Security number on it anymore. It has a special Medicare claim number on it for them. The other thing that's uh, interesting is that New Jersey has a medicinal marijuana program. Uh, and there are now decisions in New Jersey, and these are case level or trial level decisions, so they don't have precedential value, uh, finding that insurance carriers and, and employers have to reimburse petitioners who have obtained medical marijuana under the direction of an authorized treating provider uh, in a workers' compensation case. So insurance carriers and employers cannot directly pay for medical marijuana in New Jersey. Of course, that's a Schedule One substance. It's still illegal in the entire country federally. Uh, but in this locality, in New Jersey, a petitioner can go to an authorized provider who will write them a script for up to two ounces per month of marijuana to be smoked. Um, that uh, they get a marijuana license and then they go to that physician. And that's having an impact or may have an impact on our narcotic use, on our opiate use, uh, which also has an impact on our secondary payer uh, allocations and set-asides because, uh, you know, my hope was that we would be replacing narcotics and opiates with uh, medicinal marijuana. And the idea being that we'll wean people off of the opiates and narcotics and maybe put them onto medicinal marijuana, uh, which theoretically would be cheaper and have less adverse consequences to those people taking it uh, than perhaps uh, uh, taking the opiates and narcotics long-term. Unfortunately, that's not gonna have an impact on our secondary payer status because Medicare, uh, as a federal entity, is not going to pay for any medicinal marijuana under any state program. And there's very clear guidance on Social Security's website. So even though New Jersey, New York, other states have medicinal marijuana programs, it's not going to affect or impact our Medicare secondary payer allocations because uh, Social Security will never be paying for that and therefore it's not gonna change uh, downward that, uh, that allocation. All right, last reminder, this is live. Please ask me questions. It makes it so much more fun to get questions. Let's talk a little bit about Section 20 in New Jersey just to sort of set the table for our secondary payer discussion. Section 20 is the part of the statute that enables the parties to resolve matters for a lump sum dismissal. 
Now, not every case can be Section 20 according to the statute. The statute's pretty specific about what kinds of cases can be dismissed pursuant to Section 20. I'm gonna to get to that in one second. The great thing about Section 20 is it is a lump sum dismissal and the petitioners can't come back and reopen their cases as is so often done in New Jersey. Approximately one in three cases in New Jersey gets reopened later for a quote, material worsening uh, for the petitioner to come into court and claim that they are now more disabled than they were uh, at the time the prior settlement was affected. So this dispenses with all of that. Uh, two, I talk to my clients about whether or not the petitioner continues to work for us. If the petitioner continues to work for us, I generally counsel them that a Section 20 may not be in their best interest because it doesn't stop them from bringing a new claim for an alleged occupational or repetitive exposure injury for the same condition in the future. Uh, Section 20s are not re judicata and they have no uh, precedential effect. So if we pay somebody $100,000 for a low back claim, maybe an operated low back, it doesn't stop them should they continue to work for us for six months later saying, oh, I aggravated my back and now I want to get compensation for the whole thing. We don't get to uh, per se claim credit for the amount of money we paid in that Section 20. So where the petitioner continues to work for us, we generally don't do it. Uh, the other downside to a Section 20, this is a major downside, is because we are generally going to be closing medical on a Section 20, we need to take Medicare's future interest into account. So we'll talk about that in a sec. Let me show you the statute. Uh, and the reason I'm showing you the statute uh, is because uh, the judge of compensation um, does not have to approve the lump sum settlement of the claim. The in, in order for a case to be ready or right for a Section 20, the issue has to be joined involving a question of jurisdiction, liability, causal relationship, or dependency, meaning actual offspring or actual dependent of the decedent. So those are the four reasons. The judge should then consider whether the settlement is fair and just under all the circumstances and approve it. But nowhere in this statute does it say the judge shall approve any Section 20. This is very different from New York. Uh, in New York, Section 32, essentially the judges will allow you to lump sum dismiss a ham sandwich. They don't care uh, what you're resolving in New York. Uh, as long as you bring a breathing claimant into court or over the phone or through the virtual hearing process, and that person says, yeah, I want to do this, the judge will approve it. So that's the statute. There's also an enabling regulation, uh, which is to provide direction to the judge of compensation as to when they can approve a Section 20. Uh, so step one is the petitioner has to be uh, represented by counsel. And again, the case has to involve a contested issue of jurisdiction, liability, causal relationship, and or dependency. Uh, then the judge has to determine that the settlement is fair and just. Uh, again, nothing in here says the judge must. It says may be approved by a judge of compensation. So this is a problem because not every case can be resolved by way of Section 20. And this is very frustrating to my clients. My clients will say, Greg, come on, I want to get rid of every case this way. I want to get them off the books and not worry about them coming back. And I want to pay them once and never hear from them again. And I say, great, well, so would I. Uh, but there are some political factors at play here. Uh, and over time, we have seen that uh, that has affected uh, why cases can be resolved pursuant to Section 20. So a lot of uh, defense counsel will tell you, well, this judge just doesn't like Section 20s, or this court doesn't do Section 20s in every case. First, uh, the job of counsel 
is to create some sort of issue. And again, it has to be causal relationship or liability, typically is the issues that we're gonna raise or jurisdiction so that we can position the case for a lump sum dismissal. We can't do it in every case. The vast majority of cases, uh, 75% or more, uh, are admitted accepted claims with a alleged permanent residual disability. So what we're looking for is an IME from our physician saying no or zero residual disability or an issue of causal relationship or jurisdiction so that we can argue for a section 20. So, that, so it's only available in a certain number of cases. Then next, there are these political or judicial factors we have to take into effect. Look at the chart on your screen right now. And you can see that over the years, the number of workers' compensation claims filed by year has dropped 50% in 25 years. Now, the Workers' Compensation Court is no longer uh, releasing statistics on their website as to how many workers' compensation claims are filed per year. But we do know from going to bench bar conferences and other information we received that as many as 20% of all workers' compensation claims are now medical provider claims. What that means is that year over year, the number of claims just keeps coming down, coming down. That trend line keeps coming down. The only thing keeping that trend line from bottoming out really is medical provider claims, but it really should be, it is shrinking. And so there is some political aspect here. Uh, judges really just don't wanna let claim petitions get dismissed always for section 20, because hey, if they do that, their caseloads are gonna drop down to almost nothing. And people are gonna be saying, why do we have so many people working in the Department of Labor, Division of Workers' Compensation? Number two, uh, judges are a little uh, hesitant to approve Section 20s the first time around. Uh, and what they mean by that is essentially before the reopener, uh, the workers' compensation law judge wants to give the claimant the opportunity to reopen their case in the future because maybe at the time of initial settlement, uh, the injury had some latency to it or was worsening over time or could be further aggravated or worsened in some way by continuing to work for the employer. Uh, this is a purely paternalistic uh, bias that we see throughout the workers' compensation courts. It's purely paternalistic, and it imagines that the parties, again, the petitioner who knows their medical condition better than anyone, uh, doesn't know, isn't working in their own best interest, and maybe is going to take a quick payday, a large lump sum settlement, instead of doing what's in their own best interest. All right, uh, you know, I kind of disagree with that approach. I think that is a little biased. Uh, again, remember, petitioners are represented by attorneys. They do hire their own medical experts. No one is in a better position to understand the petitioner's medical future better than the petitioner. I mean, they know how bad they're malingering and stretching out their case. Uh, it's a lot harder for us to determine that. But so for all those reasons, um, uh, sometimes a case cannot be resolved via Section 20. And it's frustrating, but it's true. So the times it can't be uh, reduced or, or resolved via Section 20 would be one, there's some employment issue. For example, this petitioner continues to work for us in some capacity. So we don't want to resolve the case in a way that they could just bring it again next week. Two, uh, we can't find any issue of jurisdiction, liability, causal relationship, or dependency. In other words, there is no issue. It's an admitted, accepted case, and our own IME uh, physician who is examining the petitioner on our behalf is saying, yep, there is some permanent residual disability here. Um, and then, of course, I, I, I do believe this impacts a lot of cases, judicial inflexibility, okay? How long has the judge been on the bench? How willing are they uh, to 
uh, let these cases be resolved via Section 20. How paternalistic is the judge? How biased are they? Uh, uh, what do they think about the proofs being brought before them? Uh, all right, so that's a little bit about Section 20s, and that sort of sets the stage for the conversation we want to have about Medicare secondary payer. Again, my goal is to resolve as many cases via Section 20 as I can where the petitioner no longer works for that employer. Uh, one of my barriers to doing that is Medicare secondary payer. Uh, the Secondary Payer Act, of course, is intended to recover money for Medicare or to prevent Medicare for paying for medical services that rightly should have been paid for by the workers' compensation carrier. Now, for most of a long time and, and a lot of my career, when nobody cared about Medicare secondary payer. I mean, 20 years ago, uh, a settlement would come before the workers' compensation law judge and uh, the petitioner would say, wait, wait, I'm closing my case out. Who pays for future medical? And we'd all kind of go, ha ha, uh, Medicare, see you later, bye-bye. And they would go on their merry way and we never really heard about it. 2001, that all changes, and nowadays we need to consider Medicare's future interest. We also need to consider, and it's not just because it's law, it's because there's penalties, okay, and the penalties affect the employer insurer and the, and the beneficiary as well. The beneficiary can have their benefits suspended if they are found to have uh, accepted monies, uh, but uh, still kept uh, Medicare on the hook for that future medical. So. We're going to talk about two different streams when we talk about Medicare. People often confuse these. Past and future, okay? Past and future. Uh, we have to consider Medicare's past interest, okay? Any money they've already spent. We have to consider Medicare's future interest, okay? That's money that they haven't yet spent, but maybe should have to if there was no workers' compensation case, okay? So again, the past, and I'll start with this because it's the easiest, is Medicare is stuff Medicare paid for but should not have paid for, okay? We often call these conditional payments. In other words, Medicare paid for something, but conditionally. They conditionally, on the, well, and they retained or reserved their right to come forward in the future and say, hey, give me my money back. I shouldn't have paid for that, okay? Uh, in general, workers' compensation is always primary to Medicare. That's what the secondary payer statute means. And for that reason, uh, when we have uh, allowed Medicare to pay for treatment that Medicare uh, shouldn't have paid for, and we should have, they're entitled to get their money back. In the old days, they would send us these wonderful page letter uh, ledgers with all the, the, the uh, statements of time that they think that we should have paid for and all the things we should have paid for. It was arranged nicely by CD9 codes, which is the Medicare billing codes or CPT codes very useful. We would scan through that and say, wait a second, uh, we should pay for everything related to the low back, but I am not paying for this treatment for chronic halitosis, male pattern baldness, pneumonia, you know, things absolutely not related to the claim. Nowadays, the uh, petitioner, uh, petitioner's attorney can directly go to Medicare, log in through their portal and see everything that Medicare is claiming is uh, conditional. Now, how does this happen? We still have petitioners who have a valid workers' compensation claim uh, going to medical providers, and for some reason they take out their Medicare uh, card and say, eh, put it on this, right? They're just used to it, maybe, uh, or uh, they don't realize that they're getting treatment for a workers' comp-related uh, symptom or condition while they're getting treatment for an unrelated symptom. So those are the ways those arise. All right, let's talk about future interest. So that's the past. We go to settle a case under Section 20. We should know the past, right? We should be, uh, have already asked, is this person Medicare entitled or eligible? Do they have a Medicare card? And have Medicare made any payments which could be considered conditional? So we should already know that, and that should be relatively behind us. Now we have to think about the future because I'm going to give this person a huge lump sum of money. 
And we all know what these petitioners do once I give them a huge lump sum of money. They go out and buy gold flake fishing boats. They go to Atlantic City for the weekend. They buy cigarettes and lottery tickets. And the money is gone as soon as we give it to them. And they are certainly not holding money aside voluntarily to pay for their own future medical treatment. Uh, in my opinion, one of the greatest, the end of medical treatment is typically when someone gets that giant lump sum award. They, all of a sudden they're healed and they're ready to go move to Florida and play the slots all day. So we still have to consider Medicare's future interest because the statute tells us we have to do that. All right. So we have to be on the lookout for people who are already entitled to Medicare or if the settlement is large enough, over $250,000, someone who has a reasonable expectation of being entitled to Medicare benefits soon. So it's not as simple as asking them, do they have a Medicare card? We just can't trust them, number one. Uh, number two, uh, they may not even know. Uh, and number three, a lot of times I won't even ask my adversary or really believe what they tell me. I'll ask my client to do a Medicare or Social Security number match and see if this person is entitled or eligible. All right, so in the old days, eligible was real simple. Uh, you have to be 65 plus, you have to have end-stage renal disease, meaning back at when this was passed, 1965, you're going to be dead soon, um, or already been determined to be Social Security disabled for two years or more. Again, when Medicare was passed in 1965, uh, the average life expectancy was 66 and a half. So this was really thought of as end-of-life care and really we'll have a year or two of exposure and then these uh, people will shuffle off the mortal coil. Of course, now people are far outliving that life expectancy. Uh, so the second time we have to consider Medicare's interest is where the settlement is over $250,000. And uh, the person may have or uh, we can expect them to have a reasonable expectation of receiving Medicare benefits shortly. And the way we would know that is hey, they've already applied for Social Security disability benefits and been denied. Um, they already applied for Social Security disability benefits and they just haven't received it yet. Uh, they are currently appealing that denial uh, and they, or and they may appeal it or they've been denied and may appeal. Uh, they're currently 62 and a half years old, so that means they're two and a half years away from eligibility. Uh, and then, of course, end-stage renal disease or blindness. Now, those uh, factors, sometimes we won't know, and sometimes the claimant will not tell the truth to their own client, so their own attorney. So we'll have to make some judgments on that. Uh, we can also use discovery methods to get the claimant's social security, it's like a tongue twister, social security claims file to see if they've actually applied, been rejected, and what conditions they applied for, et cetera. All right, now, when we contact uh, Medicare, they're always gonna re reply, they're always gonna respond. First, if they believe that they've made conditional payments, uh, they'll get back to us quickly with less than two weeks and tell us, hello everybody, uh, yeah, we made these conditional payments, we demand you repay them. So that's relatively simple and that's the past. Um, when we're considering settling a, uh, a case under Section 20, and that's going to foreclose future medical, then uh, we will propose a set-aside allocation to Medicare, essentially saying, hey, this settlement is for $100,000, but we are going to allocate $25,000 of that and put that aside uh, to cover their future medical. And Medicare, do you think that's fair? Do you think that's an, a reasonable amount? And they'll get back to us and tell us if it is or not. Now. Medicare will always respond with the lien. Uh, we've had good results from that. And even more simply, we can just simply go through the portal and find out what conditional payments allegedly have been made. Uh, it is useful to go through those conditional payment statements and see if some of those things have nothing at all to do with our workers' compensation claims and try to get those thrown out. Uh, Medicare will not review at all where there's no entitlement, no reasonable expectation. Uh, they'll just, there's no match. They just won't get back to you.
Uh, they also have review thresholds. So for a currently entitled claimant who is receiving current Medicare benefits, they're not going to review your proposed allocation if the proposed settlement is under $25,000. To Medicare, I think they're looking at that and they're just going, that's small potatoes. I'm not wasting my time and resources with that. And the benefit recovery contractor won't even look at it. Um, they will look at it if it is a large enough case or you've exceeded the, th exceeded the threshold. Uh, Medicare simply expects compliance. We don't see a ton of uh, uh, investigations being spearheaded or started by Medicare. In fact, the reported decisions seem to show that there are whistleblower situations more likely than not. Um, and Medicare will always will communicate with you and will send you a consent letter saying essentially, hey, you've proposed this settlement uh, for a lump sum dismissal pursuant to Section 20. You have proposed this allocation. We think that's the right amount of money, and therefore we are going to consent to it if all of this is true. Now, post-settlement, we have to send a copy of the settlement papers to Medicare so they can confirm that we didn't pull an old switcheroo or a fast one on them. All right? All right. Uh, let's jump into questions now at this time. I'm going to come over here. If you haven't typed me your question, please do it now. I'm looking forward to seeing if we have any great questions in here. Oh, okay. So James asked a question about medical provider statute. Let me get back to that one. Okay, and Maureen asked a question about reopeners. So let me reverse the order. Thanks, guys, for asking these questions. Maureen says, Greg, how many times can a claimant come back for reopeners for worsening of condition? Answer? Unlimited. You can keep coming back and keep coming back. And we can think of conditions uh, where there is significant uh, injury or significant exposure causing uh, degenerative circumstances, conditions where the person needs to come back every so often. Uh, I'm thinking of things like very horrific uh, amputations involving a worsening, maybe effects of bo other body parts and need to come back for further prosthetics in the future, uh, or where there is infection and infection spreads, those types of conditions. Uh, your run-of-the-mill uh, hand, finger, feet, toe fracture cases, hand, finger, feet, toe amputation cases, uh, they should be resolved typically under an order approving, sec, uh, uh, order approving settlement under Section 22, which does give the petitioner the right to reopen for two years. They almost uh, always come back on a reopener, and those are then typically resolved by way of Section 20. So in New Jersey, typically that reopener, when that comes back, we're saying, okay, our doctor is now going to say 0% disability or increase in disability. Their doctor, of course, is going to find them totally disabled and how they even crawl into my office. It's a miracle today. And we're typically going to resolve those via Section 20. Okay. Uh, James asked a question uh, about the recent decision in New Jersey. He says, Greg, can you comment on the recent decision in New Jersey to extend the statute of limitations on medical provider billing from two years to six years? Uh, will this be challenged by carriers? Not sure we will see a huge impact as most medical facilities typically file quickly when they're not properly paid. All right, so uh, I think it was two weeks ago, our appellate division issued a decision uh, stating that the medical provider uh, application for reimbursement, in other words, a medical provider coming forward and saying, hey, I was paid X amount of dollars in New Jersey for uh, treatment I rendered to your workers' compensation petitioner or claimant, but that's not enough. I want even more money, and I want the judge of compensation to decide, okay? That's what a medical provider application is. My position, and I had always argued, that it's a two-year statute of limitations, that the uh, limitation period should run from the time the treatment was rendered. 
and the reasoning behind that, or my reasoning was uh, that, hey, uh, why would the medical provider have a different statute of limitations than the petitioner themselves? So why would their period to file exceed the two-year statute of limitations, which is everywhere else in our Workers' Compensation Act in New Jersey. In New Jersey, uh, the time to file a claim, a time for a latent exposure to become manifest and then a uh, claim filed, the time for a dependency claim, these are all two years. So why would it be longer? Uh, I've had many interesting debates about this with my co-author, Rick Rubenstein. Uh, we both write, uh, are the co-authors of the LexisNexis Practice Guide for New Jersey. And last year when we rewrote it, we, we do a revision every year of that practice guide for, new, for Lexis, for our publisher. Uh, nothing had changed and you know we put in there, hey, after two years you should file your motion to dismiss. That's gonna change now with this appellate decision, which essentially says that no, the Workers' Compensation Act does not impair the ability of a medical provider to take advantage of New Jersey's much more generous six-year statute of limitations for contractual claims. So that's the way the law stands right now. Uh, this is the uh, decision of first impression on this, so there has not been presidential case law or authority before, and this is now the law in New Jersey. Okay, uh, Cindy asked a question. Does the Medicare set-aside go to petitioners or does it go to Medicare? Okay, uh, most set-asides, okay, these are future allocations, are going to be self-administered, which means we give the petitioner a settlement check. Here's $100,000, we've resolved your, your workers' compensation claim, the indemnity portion, and the medical portion. Here's $25,000, this is the allocation, hold this aside, petitioner, but self-administer it, so as more medical needs come up for this affected body part, I intend for you, and we all agree, that you are going to use this allocation, this special amount, that you are getting paid today. Now, in my belief is that most of them probably just abuse it, take the money, lump it all up, go to Atlantic City and have a great time, but most of these uh, are self-administered. Uh, there are exceptions to that, so we can structure uh, the way the money is put into the set-aside. We can annuitize the way the money is put into it. And of course, we can have a professional or third party or an attorney administer the set-aside account on behalf of the petitioner. Um, Joanne asked a question, if we do a set-aside, does this forfeit our right to a Section 20 settlement? No, these things are done together. They were done at the same time and you are doing the set aside. In other words, you are gonna set aside money for Medicare's future interest because you are doing a Section 20 lump sum dismissal, which extinguishes all of your future liability for medical care. And it's only in those circumstances where you are foreclosing your uh, responsibility to pay for future medical care that you need a set aside. If you did a section 20 and you said this section 20 is indemnity only, we're gonna keep the medical open, uh, that's fine. You don't need to set aside in those circumstances. I don't recommend it. Okay, well, that's all our questions. These were great questions today, thank you. Um, thanks for joining me today. If I didn't get to your question or you didn't type it in fast enough or I haven't uh, answered it as fully as you'd like, please feel free to call or email me. I'll be very happy to answer any questions afterwards about this topic. Uh, next month, we're going to talk about reopeners, so it's an interesting topic, and it is the most frequent way we get to a Section 20 in New Jersey, by the way. So we're going to talk about reopeners and a little bit about appeals, and I will do my once-a-year review of all of the important appellate decisions in New Jersey. So join us next uh, month at noon on February 25th. Thanks for coming today. Have a great week.